story of psychology, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, with your host, Professor Todd. Part 1, The Ancients, The Pre-Socratics. Psyche, from the Greek, suke, possibly derived from a word meaning warm-blooded, life, soul, ghost, departed spirit, conscious self, personality, butterfly or moth. Similar words, thymos, meaning breath, life, soul, temper, courage, will. The Greeks. Western intellectual history always begins with the ancient Greeks. This is not to say that no one else had any deep thoughts prior to the ancient Greeks, or that the philosophies of ancient India and China and elsewhere were any way inferior. In fact, philosophies from all over the world eventually came to influence Western thought, but only much later. It was the Greeks that educated the Romans, and after a long, dark age, it was the records of those same Greeks, kept and studied by the Muslim and Jewish scholars, as well as by Christian monks, that educated Europe once again. So we might ask, why the Greeks in the first place? Why not the Phoenicians, or the Carthaginians, or the Persians, or the Etruscans? Well, there are a variety of possible reasons. One has to do with the ability to read and write, which in turn has to do with the alphabet. It is when ideas get recorded that they enter intellectual history. Buddhism, for example, although a very sophisticated philosophy, was an oral tradition for hundreds of years, until committed to writing, since the Brahmi alphabet was late in coming. It was only then that Buddhism spread throughout Asia. The original alphabet was developed by a Semitic people living on the Mediterranean coast, working in or near Egypt. They based the alphabet on an idea developed by the Egyptians, what we would now call hieroglyphics. The alphabet began as these people began to use simple drawings to represent consonants instead of entire words. The alphabet was quickly adopted by their neighbors and relatives to the east and the north, the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, and the Hebrews. In fact, ancient Hebrew, the language of the Bible, contains only consonants, no vowels, as well as no space between the words, making biblical interpretation of the ancient Hebrew notoriously tricky. The Phoenicians apparently passed it on to the people of the Near East and Asia Minor, as well as to the Arabs, the Etruscans, and to the Greeks. The Greeks improved on the idea by inventing vowels, using some extra letters that their language had no use for. Now, until recently, it was believed that the inventors of the alphabet lived in the Sinai Desert and began using their alphabet in the 1700s BC. However, in 1998, archaeologist John Darnell discovered rock carvings in southern Egypt's Valley of Horrors that pushed back the origin of the alphabet to the 1900s BC, or perhaps even earlier. Prior to the invention of the alphabet, reading and writing was the domain of specialized scribes, concerned mostly with keeping track of government records. 
even in the case of the Phoenicians, writing was more a tool of the merchant class to keep track of trade than a means of recording ideas. In Greece, at least in certain city-states, reading and writing was something that everyone did. And by everyone, of course, I mean upper-class males. Women, peasants, slaves were discouraged from picking up the skill, as they would be, and unfortunately still are, in many places around the world. So if you wonder where all the women philosophers are, well, there are very few indeed. The poet Sappho of the island Lesbos is the closest we get to a female philosopher on record in the ancient world. Sappho was born somewhere around 630 BC on the Greek island of Lesbos. She wrote many volumes of poetry that were admired throughout ancient Greece and the surrounding world. Plato even once suggested that she should be added to the list of muses that are said to inspire artists. Her home island even minted a coin with her likeness in her lifetime. Sappho had both male and female lovers, and it is her island which gives its name to the love between women. She is said to have committed suicide by leaping off a high cliff because of a broken heart. Her poetry usually concerned love, and often refers to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. It was accompanied by simple music, played on the lyre, a small harp that you may see her holding in pictures. Because her poetry only survives in fragments, modern translators have had the difficult task of reconstructing her poetry on the basis of those bits and pieces. But let's return to a discussion of the alphabet. Having an alphabet allowed the Greeks to begin recording ideas. But simply having an alphabet does not explain everything. Another thing that made the Greeks a bit more likely to get the intellectual ball rolling was the fact that they got into overseas trading early. Their land and their climate was okay for agriculture, but not great. So the idea of trading for what you can't grow or make yourself came naturally. Plus, Greek is practically all coastlines and islands, so seafaring came equally naturally. What sea trading gives you is contact with a great variety of civilizations, including their religions and philosophies and sciences. This, of course, gets people thinking. If this culture says X and that one says Y and a third one says Z, well then, what is the truth? Traders, it turns out, are usually skeptics. Still, the Phoenicians and their cousins, the Carthaginians, had the alphabet first. And they were excellent sea traders as well. So why weren't they the founders of Western intellectual history? Perhaps it had to do with centralization. The Phoenicians had an authoritarian government controlled by the most powerful merchants. The Carthaginians had the same. Perhaps being surrounded by powerful authoritarian empires forced them to adopt that style of government in order to survive. But the Greeks, on the other hand, were divided into many small city-states, each unique, each fiercely independent, always bickering and often fighting. That may seem 
disadvantageous. But when it comes to ideas, diversity, and even conflict can be invigorating. Consider that when Greece was finally united under Macedonian rule, the flurry of intellectual activity slowed. And when the Romans took over, it practically died. The Basics The ancient Greek philosophers gave us the basic categories of philosophy, beginning with metaphysics. Metaphysics is the part of philosophy that asks questions such as, what is the world made of? And, what is the ultimate substance of all reality? In fact, the ancient Greeks were among the first to suggest that there is a true reality, the noumenon, underneath the apparent reality, the phenomenon, an unseen real beneath the unreal seen. The question is, was this a true reality? Is it matter and energy, i.e. something physical? This is called materialism. Or was this phenomenon something more spiritual and mental, such as ideals or ideas? And this is called idealism. Materialism and idealism constitute two extreme answers, and later we will explore some other possibilities. The second aspect of philosophy is epistemology. Epistemology is the philosophy of knowledge. How do we know what is true or false, what is real or not? Can we know anything for certain, or is it ultimately hopeless? And again, the Greeks outlined two opposing approaches to this problem of knowledge. One is called empiricism, which says that all knowledge comes through the senses. The other is called rationalism, which says that knowledge is a matter of reason, thought. There are other answers in epistemology as well. In fact, empiricism and rationalism have never been entirely exclusive. The third aspect of philosophy that we will be concerned with is ethics. Ethics is the philosophical understanding of good and bad, right and wrong. It is often called morality, and most people consider the two words synonymous. After all, ethics comes from ethos, which is Greek for customs, and morality comes from mores, which is Latin for customs. So as we shall see, ethics is the most difficult of the three aspects of philosophy. For the present, we might want to differentiate between the extremes of hedonism and cynicism. Hedonism says that good and bad come down to what I like and what I don't like, what gives me pleasure and what gives me pain. Cynicism says that the world is essentially evil. We can only work at distancing ourselves from it and moving toward the ultimate good, which is God. There are many other aspects of philosophy. Logic, for example, and aesthetics, the study of beauty. But metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics will be sufficient for now. 
the Ionians. Greek philosophy did not begin in Greece as we know it. It began on the western coast of what is now Turkey, an area then known as Ionia. In Ionia's richest city, Miletus, was a man of Phoenician descent called Thales, 624 to 546 BC. He studied in Egypt and other parts of the Near East and learned geometry and astronomy. His answer to the great question of what the universe is made of was water. Inasmuch as water is a simple molecule found in gaseous, liquid, and solid forms and found just about everywhere, especially life, this is hardly a bad answer. It makes Thales not only the nominal first philosopher, but also the first materialist as well. Since ultimate nature was known in Greek as physis, he could also be called the first physicist, or as the Greeks would say, physiologist. We should note, however, that he also believed that the whole universe of material things is alive, and that animals, plants, and even metals have souls, an idea called panpsychism. His most famous student was Anaximander, 611 to 549 BC, also of Miletus. He is probably best known for having drawn the first map of the inhabited world. Anaximander added an evolutionary aspect to Thales' materialism. The universe begins as an unformed, infinite mass, which develops over time into the many-faceted world that we see around us. But, he warns, the world will eventually return to the unformed mass. Further, the Earth began as fluid, some of which dries to become Earth and some of which evaporates to become atmosphere. Life also began in the sea, only gradually becoming animals of the land and birds of the air. Like Thales, Heraclitus, 540 to 475 BC, was an Ionian, from Ephesus, a little north of Miletus. And like Thales, he was searching for the ultimate substance that unifies all reality. He decided on fire, or energy. Again, not a bad guess at all. The multiplicity of reality comes out of fire by condensation, becoming humid air, and then water, and finally earth. But this is balanced by rarefaction, and the earth liquefies, then evaporates, and finally returns to pure energy. Taking fire as his ultimate substance led to a more dynamic view of reality. Change, for Heraclitus, is the only constant. Panta re uden mene. All things flow, nothing abides. That is his most famous saying. He is also known for saying that we cannot step into the same river twice because the water is constantly flowing onto us. Fire is also associated in his theory with mind or spirit. And just like any other fire, he points out that our individuality eventually dies. There is no personal immortality. Only God, the divine fire, is eternal. In many ways, Heraclitus reminds us of a Greek Taoist, he believed that, although 
ultimate reality is one, the world we know is made up of dualities, with each pole requiring the existence of its opposite. Up requires down. White requires black. Good requires bad. Light requires darkness, and so on. He sees these oppositions as being the source of harmony, pointing out that unless you stretch your harp strings into opposing directions, you cannot play music. And again, like the Taoist, he believed that the best way to live one's life is in harmony with nature. But he died alone at the age of 70 due to his intense dislike for human company. The Greeks of Italy. Another Ionian was Pythagoras, 582 to 500 BC. After traveling everywhere from Gaul, modern-day France, to Egypt and India, he settled down in Cretona, a seaport in southern Italy. Southern Italy was the greatest settlement of Greeks outside of Greece, to the point that the Romans referred to the area as Magna Greca, Greater Greece. And it was there, in Cretona, that Pythagoras set up his famous school. Now, his school was more like a large commune, and Pythagoras' philosophy was more like a religion. Because they believed in reincarnation, all of his followers were vegetarians. They avoided wine, swearing by the gods, sexual misconduct, excesses, and frivolity. For the first five years, a new pupil took a vow of silence. Women were treated as equals, a true rarity in the ancient world. His philosophy was rooted in mathematics, which meant geometry to the ancient Greeks. Pythagoras is credited with a number of geometric proofs, most notably the Pythagorean theorem. The sum of the squares of two sides of a right triangle is equal to the square of the hypotenuse. He discovered the first mathematical basis of music and saw that the same patterns exist in the movements of the planets. He is also the first person to realize that the Earth, the Moon, and the planets are all spheres, hence the music of the spheres. He saw the elegant lawfulness of geometry as the foundation of the entire universe. So. Rather than look for an understanding of the universe in the movement of matter and energy, he looked for the laws of nature, the form rather than the material. But since these laws exist only in the mind as ideas, we would call Pythagoras an idealist. Although his life remains mysterious, his school lasted for 300 years and had a profound influence on those who followed most particularly a young man named Plato. In Elia, another Greek seaport in the south of Italy, lived Xenophanes, 570-475 BC. He is best known for his denial of the existence of the Greek gods. Quote, Mortals fancy that gods are born and wear clothes and have a voice in a form like themselves. 
Yet if oxen and lions had hands and could paint and fashion images as men do, they would make the pictures and images of their gods in their own likenesses. Horses would make them look like horses, oxen like oxen. Ethiopians make their gods black and snub-nosed. Thracians give theirs blue eyes and red hair. End quote. From Diogenes Laertes by Theophanes. There is only one God, he said, and that is the universe. Nature. This perspective is known as pantheism. Nevertheless, said Xenophanes, all things, even human beings, evolved from earth and water by means of natural law. But things and people remain forever secondary to the ultimate reality that is God or nature. Parmenides, 540-470 BC of Elia, was a disciple of Xenophanes and would have a particularly potent influence on Plato. He extended Xenophanes' concept of the one God by saying, Henta Panta, all things are one. Ultimate reality is constant. What we believe to be a world of things and motion and change is just an illusion. One of Parmenides' disciples was Zeno of Elia, or 90 to 430 BC. Not to be confused with Zeno of Sidium, who we will look at in a later chapter. Zeno of Elia wrote a book of famous paradoxes, including the story of Achilles and the tortoise. Let's give the tortoise a head start. By the time Achilles gets to where the tortoise started, the tortoise will have moved a little farther. And by the time Achilles gets to where the tortoise had moved, the tortoise will have moved a little further still, and so on. Hence, Achilles can never catch up with the tortoise. The point of the story, and of all the stories, is that motion is an illusion. In making his point, Zeno of Elia invented the form of argument known as reduction to absurdity. And you will note, however, that these arguments don't really hold up in the long run, because Zeno mistakenly takes motion, time, and space as made up of an infinite number of points, rather than being continuous. The Abderans. Lysippus, circa 440 BC, was from Miletus in Ionia, the home of Thales and Anaximander. He studied with Zeno at Elea and then started teaching in Abdera, an Ionian Greek colony on the southern shore of Thrace in northeastern Greece. Although only one sentence of his actual teachings remain, Lysippus will always be remembered as the man who invented the idea of the atom, empty space, and cause and effect. Even the soul, he said, is made up of atoms. It was Lysippus's student Democritus, 460 to 370 BC of Abdura, who would take these ideas and develop them into a full-bodied philosophy. He traveled extensively, 
wrote books on every subject and was considered the equal of the great Plato and Aristotle. But he never founded a school, and so his ideas never had quite the same impact as Plato's and Aristotle's ideas would on later civilization. Democritus was quite skeptical of sense data and introduced the idea of secondary qualities. Things like color and sound and taste are more in your mind than in the thing itself. Furthermore, he said, sensations are a matter of atoms falling on the sense organs and that all the senses are essentially a form of touch. He also invented the idea that we identify qualities by convention. So, for instance, we call sweet things sweet, and that is what leads us to group them together, not some quality of the things themselves. And this is called nominalism, from the Latin word for name. This way of thinking doesn't show up again until the late Middle Ages. The soul, or the mind, Democritus said, is composed of small, smooth, round atoms, a lot like fire or energy atoms that can be found throughout the bodies of both humans and animals, and even the rest of the world. Happiness comes from acquiring knowledge and ultimately wisdom. Sensual pleasure is way too short-lived and fickle to depend upon. So instead the wise man or woman should practice to seek peace of mind, ataraxia, through cheerfulness, moderation, and orderly living. His moral theory is based on the sense of integrity. Quote, A man should feel more shame in doing evil before himself than before all of the world. End quote. Democritus did not believe in gods or an afterlife. In fact, he formed an atheist organization called the Cacodemoniotai, or the Devil's Club. He is sometimes called the Laughing Philosopher because he found life much more cheerful without what he considered to be the depressing superstitions of religion. He took Leucippus's materialism very seriously, noting that matter can never be created nor destroyed, that there were an infinity of worlds like our own, and that there was no such thing as chance, only causation. And it would, even, it would be many centuries before these ideas would again become popular. A little older than Democrates was Protagoras, 480 to 411 BC, also of Abdera, he is the most famous of the group of philosophers known as the sophists. The word comes from the Greek sophistai, which means teachers of wisdom, i.e. professor. Because some of these professors taught little more than how to win arguments in court and did so for exorbitant fees, the name has become somewhat derogatory. Sophistry now means argument for argument's sake or for the sake of personal gain. But then, it is also the root of the word sophisticated. Protagoras, although his teaching fees were in fact high, was a serious philosopher. 
he can be credited with founding the science of grammar. Being the first to distinguish the various conjugations of verbs and declensions of nouns, he was also a major contributor to logic and was using the Socratic method, teaching by question and answer, before Socrates. And Protagoras was a skeptic. He believed that there were no ultimate truths, that truth is relative, a subjective thing. Quote, man is the measure of all things, end quote. That is his most famous quote, meaning that all things are what we say they are. Applying this skepticism to the gods, he scared the Athenian powers that be, and he was ordered to leave Athens. Apparently, he drowned on his way to Sicily. Into this idea-rich environment would come three Athenians who would come to dominate philosophy for the next 2,000 years. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. <laughs>